This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, I think we have a really interesting conversation. Matthew Hall is Associate Director of Research Services at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. He's the author of Plants as Persons, A Philosophical Botany, and The Imagination of Plants, a book of botanical mythology. Both of these books are part of a Religion and the Environment series put out by SUNY Press. Matt joins us today to share more about his work and this interesting journey to date. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Jennifer. A pleasure to be here. I'd love to start, Matt, with having you um, describe your work there at the university and maybe your current relationship with plants uh, that informs some of your philosophical work and writing. Sure. So... So I, as you say, we we are in Wellington, New Zealand, which um, is a fairly green part of the world. I'm lucky to live in a very green part of Wellington. We have a, a house that backs onto some regenerating uh, bushland. Um, and my kind of daily involvement with plants is probably not too dissimilar from most people's. I'm a very keen gardener. Um, I'm, I'm embarking on a project at the minute to to revamp my garden, putting in more plants into the ground. We've got some quite bare patches at the minute with, um, you know, just the history of the land use in my garden. Um, you know, I the I used to be a, a botanist, and that really my relationship with plants then was quite unusual, and probably what most people would not be doing in their daily lives. So, you know, I'd spend months and months of each year on quite um, intrepid expeditions searching out um, novel um, ecological assemblages or novel species. Um, and so that's kind of one side of, of kind of being a lover of plants. But I guess at the minute, um, my engagement with plants is, is pretty normal in terms of my day-to-day life. Um, What's probably less uh, run-of-the-mill is is kind of my writing about them and how I draw on kind of my experience and how I try to then and set down in in words you know, what this relationship we have with plants you know the many relationships we have what they're about and what they're composed of so. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm kind of an ordinary plant person at the minute um, in terms of my engagement, um, but I'm also trying to, you know, for myself, not just not just for others to read, but trying to understand myself what what shapes my relationships with plants and how I view them and how I can grow that. I guess you have a home garden there in uh, Wellington with your family. Uh, is it a an ornamental garden? Is it a vegetable garden? Is it a habitat? Like describe what kinds of things you cultivate there and then maybe share with listeners the names of your garden team family, if you might. Sure, I will indeed. So we live in a, a, a little suburb on the 
south coast of Wellington called Island Bay. Um, it's a very beautiful place to live. We are very lucky. We have, uh, I think our block is 1,200 square meters, but Wellington is quite hilly, um, very hilly, in fact. And so most of our garden is very steep. I, I guess the back half is is really regenerating native bush or native forest. Um, a lot of Wellington, um, when it was being settled, in inverted commas, would have been burnt back or cut back for grazing or other purposes. So we've got regrowth there that's probably, according to some of our neighbours, probably about... 30 or 35 years old. And so what I what we tried to do there is try to encourage that regrowth, um, weeding out some quite invasive um, exotic that kind of tend to smother the seedlings coming through and supplementing, I guess, some parts of the garden, the native seedlings. We have some trees um, in the garden where the native seedlings really do come up vigorously. And I've just been transplanting them more. As you say, with my garden helpers, my daughters Iris, who's five, and Hebe, who's two, um, and they help sometimes um, replant. So we've got two quite dominant trees there on the block, um, the Nio um, tree and a tree, a, a variety of species of Coprosma called, um, in the Terrell Māori language, Taupata. So they're quite, um, they tend to be the kind of pioneers and they go in every now and again and we've we've really we've probably planted about 100 trees up the back there just to speed things along and now pretty much um we're just leaving it alone and let nature take its course so that's the top block and um, kind of down in the middle we do have some terraced areas and um, we put in there were some old fruit trees sadly we had some peaches that were just very disease ridden and we're trying to treat them um, to no avail, and they were they were basically, um, yeah, they were so diseased we had to unfortunately take them out. We replaced them with some other fruit trees. We've got some pear trees and some plums. Um, Wellington is a very windy city. I think possibly the most windy city in the world. Um, and so we we we're really gardening here, we're trying to um, put put in things that we're going to cope with that wind. So we in our early experimentation. We tried a few fruit trees that just really didn't like the wind. Um, so the, the pears are doing are doing well, the plums doing pretty well. Um, and then around there, we've I've, I've tried to plant some companion kind of species around the foot of the fruit trees, bringing in pollinators. So we've got a mixture there of kind of pretty ordinary horticultural plants. We've got some lavenders, we've got borids, we've got um, other kind of plants that are bringing in um, pollinators. Um, then to one side, we also put in a couple of just regular vegetable beds um, as we're growing things that tend to do well here, or we're growing zucchini and some capsicum and, and tomatoes. Although sometimes we, we're getting the green shield beetle. I don't know if you have that over there in California, but that's that gets first bite on our tomatoes and. Either that or our, our two young girls kind of tend to strip them there, but that's fine. Um, we've also planted quite a few Fijoa. I don't know if you know the Fijoa, um, South American 
origin fruit that is very big in New Zealand. I'd never encountered it. I'm not a native New Zealander, but my wife, who is, introduced me to it. And so we've planted up six or seven feeders to form a hedge. It's quite vigorous growing, and the girls in feeder season, which will um, not be too far away, just um, gorge on feeder fruit, which is nice. Um, and then we've got the house. We have a little bit of land in front where really it's quite steep. And what I've tried to do is put in as many native um, species as possible, really to hold the land together. This is quite steep. Um, but also, again, to encourage um, bird life into the garden. We're very lucky in Wellington. We've got a, uh, an urban sanctuary um, that is in the city, and it's brought a lot of native bird life back to the city. And so we've been planting species, you know, nothing too kind of um, rare, but flax, for example, Reformium tenax, we put that in, in quite abundance, and our native tui birds love that. So the girls enjoy seeing the tui on the flax. And yeah, so that's kind of our garden in three parts, I guess. Um, and we spend most weekends out there trying to do something and to engage with the plants out there. And your, your wife's name is? Is Magnolia. <laughs> so we, we do have three, we have three botanical notes. I really wanted that trifecta of names stated out loud, Matt, because um, I think all of that, the story of your garden, of your girls, of your um, partnership with your wife and that land is, it informs much of what we're about to talk about in, in important ways. So your job at the University of Wellington um, or the University of New Zealand Wellington is what exactly? What do you do? So on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of my job doesn't involve plants at all. So as, as you say, I'm the Associate Director of Research Services, and that's really an administrative kind of leadership role where um, we provide a kind of guidance and, and support for research activity across the university. Um, so things um, that are in my direct kind of, under my direct control are kind of, helping to shape the research strategy of the university, helping to shape its uh, ethics and integrity processes, and, and helping with some of the you know, our internal investment in research. That obviously draws on my, I've got quite an unusual background, which we may get into, um, where I've worked across a number of research fields and in a number of research institutions. And so that really draws on that kind of experience. I'm very lucky kind of in this role that I also get time to do my own research. Um, so kind of one, uh, normally I get one day a week at the minute. Um, and that's where I get to spend time at home thinking about plants, thinking about other people's thoughts about plants and, and writing about them. So yeah, that's kind of, it's an interesting counterpoint. Um, as my history kind of, doing research has been, it has been quite unusual. Um, and so it doesn't kind of phase me to have a reasonably unusual setup at the minute, but I, I, I enjoy the seeing the wide spectrum of research in my kind of day job, if you like, and then in my research role. I, that's taught me a lot about, you know, how to position my research, how to get the most out of it, how to try and get it to be accessible and as, um, wider reach as possible. So 
yeah, that's my day work. Well, and as our conversation, I think, will unfold, it will become apparent to listeners how your history, your research currently and previously inform or or uh, create a foundation that you then bring to the rest of your work in anything to do with ethics, integrity, sure. and further research at the university yep. in really compelling ways. So let's go back. Let's go to where you were just kind of referring to. Give us your your backstory of, of where you were born and raised and um, your journey to where you are right now, and then we'll talk about the heart of the books. Sure. So... I'll try and do this fairly succinctly. So I was born in the north of England in a county in the hills called Lancashire um, and small kind of old mill town that was um, going through kind of industrial changes. My earliest kind of memories there of plants are in my own small garden um, where my parents um, grew a variety of things. We had apple tree and I just have very fond memories of, you know, as most kids will probably do, kind of interacting with the the plants there making potions or we used to make uh, a bow and arrow out of the elder um, tree, the um, long um, sticks there. Um, and I also had two, you know, my grandparents, particularly my dad's mother, had a, she lived really in the countryside and had a, a large plot um, where she grew pretty much all her own vegetables. Um, and she was very knowledgeable about plants, and I rem- I just have a few vivid memories. Um, she's long since passed, but kind of of her explaining to me about certain plants that were either useful for medicine, like foxglove, or um, you know that she was growing. She was a keen gardener of um, gooseberries, and um, mm. she used to make wine out of. So they were quite kind of you know again not too kind of radically unusual for most people. I would. I would guess, but you're know, quite fortunate to have those kind of teachers. But really, um, what it probably diverges from most people's stories. So I went to university in Edinburgh um, and I started up just a, a biological sciences degree. And I had some very inspiring teachers who taught botany. Um, uh, a teacher who was also since passed, a guy called Philip Smith, who if you talk to anybody who went to Edinburgh at the time, he was legendary. He he was a very charismatic teacher. Um, he would have students standing up and giving him a you know, round of applause at the end of his lectures. He was mm. dramatic. He would sing to us during our practicals where we would be d- dissecting plants or drawing flowers and things. And he was he was an encyclopedia of, of botany and incredibly inspiring. So I did a, an honours project with him that was part of, um, partly down at the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh. And from there, I transitioned kind of into very much botany. So I did my master's degree in plant taxonomy and biodiversity at the Royal Botanic Garden, Edinburgh. And then from that, I worked with a, a, another incredible botanist called Tony Miller, who was an expert in the Middle Eastern flora, of which Edinburgh um, historically has been very strong for a number of reasons. And I, I did some kind of voluntary work, if you like, with him. And pretty soon that segued into, um, you know, some trips with him out to the Middle East. Um, my first one was with him to Yemen 
to survey a rare tropical forest. And that was really where my kind of engagement with plants probably started to diverge from most most folks. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, worked there at the Botanic Garden for a little while, kind of in a fairly casual role. Um, but at that time, I had also had another teacher from my undergraduate time, a, a professor called Tony Truabas, and he um, he was an expert in plant signaling, particularly with calcium. And he'd started, he was getting on a little bit, um, and you know, as biology professors sometimes do, he was getting a little bit philosophical, and he was putting together a lot of existing research on plant signaling into a new frame around plant intelligence. Um, and when I started to read his work, it, it literally just blew my mind. Um, and it also started to connect with some reading I've been doing myself. I was very interested in ethnobotany. Um, and I'd, I'd come across the work of um, a couple of scholars down in Australia who were writing from a more philosophical engagement with the natural world. And I'd started to put two and two together and this this really became the foundation of my PhD research, um, which I did in Australia. And then the book that you mentioned, first of all, Plants as Persons. So I was really starting to kind of connect disparate bits of literature, just really start to think about plants in different ways. So, uh, yeah, I, I spent two and a bit years doing that kind of initial PhD, which was quite quick really because I had such incredible, I just had access to incredible teachers who kind of put jet propellers under me and took me so far down, down a path that um, I'm still kind of catching up with a little bit. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Matt Hall, a husband, father, and gardener, in addition to being author of The Imagination of Plants. We'll be right back for more with this deep dive into botanical mythology. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. The idea of botanical mythology and how we position plants and the botanical world in our most valued cultural stories is such a strikingly effective measurement for how we value and treat our botanical world. And seeing this can, of course, also show us how in changing the way we story these beings goes hand in hand with changing our mindsets, which is the only really effective method I know for changing our behavior. We change our behavior if we really believe something to be true. It was about halfway through my interview with Matt that I had one of those light bulb moments of this. This was my point in starting Cultivating Place. I wanted to change how we talk about and how we routinely hear others talk and think about plants and this plant garden life. Centering the value of the botanical world for its own sake, elevating its importance and prioritization in each of our lives, elevates the way we all see and feel together in this worldview. Together, we grow stronger in our resolve to work and think on behalf of this priority in our world. So thank you for listening along here. 
for participating in this Cultivating Place Garden Level Worldview. If you value these conversations and this kind of dialogue, I so appreciate whatever support you might want and be able to share. Share the podcast with friends. Share your reviews and ratings of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast platform is. Follow and share your thoughts with Cultivating Place on Instagram or share a financial donation. One time or recurring monthly, large or small, by following the support button at the top right hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. And thank you for any one of these kinds of shares. They help this podcast grow stronger every season. As we come back, Matt is sharing more on his time in Yemen prior to his PhD work in Australia, both times of which were foundational to his first book, Plants as Persons. So I think I went to Yemen, it would have been 2005, um, certainly around that time. And I just, yeah, I started to put out feelers, I think possibly before I I was looking at doing a PhD without doing a master's and I'd already been in contact with my uh, primary supervisor, a lady who's also passed, incredible academic uh, anthropologist called Deborah Bird-Rose. And she was very encouraging and we were having various email exchanges. Um, And I think I had applied for a couple of scholarships and not got them and made the tactical move to get another qualification and and, and build on that. And I think that was a smart move to do. So it was around 2005 that um, I, it was a one year master's. So I'd done that, I did that master's degree, started some field work in Yemen. I think at the start of that year, we did a two week trip. And then the end of that year, we did about three months trip to Yemen. And that was, that was quite eye opening. Um, and yeah, just these, you know, it was, this kind of literature and these ideas are just starting to percolate, I guess. Um, and I don't often reflect on this, so that's it's very nice to be able to to do that. But yeah, there were just all these influences, as you say, just starting to come together. Really. Describe for listeners the basic, you know, to the best of your ability. This is not an easy thing to summarize, but the the kind of thesis and. Uh, outline of support in plants as persons, the the first book, The Philosophical Botany, because that is a very clear stepping stone into that leaped you into the next one. I guess the book is in, if I was to divide, it would be into two parts. The first idea driving me was a, a keen interest really in why philosophically and culturally, and this is not to say it's for everybody, Gardeners may be a strong exception to this. But why, in general, as a culture, um, kind of a Western with Judeo-Christian heritage, why we view plants re- pretty much as passive beings that are, are way beyond our ethical consideration? And so I was going back there into uh, back to the ancient Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, and Aristotle's student Theophrastus, who's often regarded as the father of botany. And there's this very interesting kind of philosophical positions taken where Aristotle puts down a tripartite kind of division of nature where, you know, plants are at the bottom, they can't move, they 
um, are barely alive. Animals can move, but they're not as, as smart as these very intelligent humans who happen to make their way to the top. And that idea, if you look through the history of botany, was pretty much in effect um, until Linnaeus's time and a little bit beyond. And so that, that idea has been deeply embedded in botanical science and I think with a, um, a wider culture. I then kind of in the second part of the book start to look at you know, different cultural foundations for understanding plants. And there are many of these and I, I did the best I could to to pull this material together, but there's there's so much more that could have gone in. But looking at cultures and you know broadly indigenous cultures which are animistic, a totally different ontological foundation. So the the, the just the, the basic foundation of how they view the being of other beings, not just humans. Uh, and so I explore that kind of rich material in a way to say, you know, there is another way, firstly, to view plants, and there are millions of people that view plants in different cultures very differently. And the, the, this basic grounding on often in animistic cultures, it's the basic ground is is a sense of basic kinship, where we are they, we are all living beings, and we we have the same substance, and we have the same genealogy which is what modern science would tell us as well. From that basis, you know, plants are, we're related. So how do you treat your relatives? Well, you treat them with basic respect. You treat them as living beings. They have their own perspective. And it's, I kind of explore that ontological foundation. There's a lot of work already previously been done by the likes of people like Graham Harvey, whose work on animism also was incredibly important for me. Um, and and then in, I guess in the latter part of the book, I then bring in this, at the time, this was very radical scientific thought from people like my old teacher, Tony Travalis, to say, hey, look, science is actually demonstrating that plants do have some of these capabilities that our Aristotelian um, way of approaching them is just outmoded. Science is really demonstrating that plants are incredibly sensitive. They have, they have the faculty of cognition. They can process information and adapt to that information in real time. And so, really, I outline what I call these cultures of disconnection and these cultures of connection, which purposely try to connect and use that scientific evidence really just as a way of saying, hey, look, you know. Our culture of disconnection is really on a flimsy basis. And then at the end, I looked at well, how can we, how can we move on from that? Because it, you know we've known since Darwin that we're related to all other creatures, but we don't live like that. And this is still, this is still basically my fundamental research question: is how can we go back? Can we go back, or how can we go forward to a, a place where we have? deeper connections that extend just beyond this very starkly kind of utilitarian view of plants as just being there for humans to use and nothing else. It, it gets to how complex the, the ideas are and how deeply ingrained in our, um, as you say, Abrahamic tradition, Western colonial culture. So when you say we've known since Darwin, well, 
that is a very specific we. Yeah, it is a we. It's a we that I I include myself and 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 me. And one of the things that's so kind of fun and exciting and hopeful to me, Matt, and I'm assuming to you as well, is that to come across your book uh, and know that it is, you know, rooted back, you know, 15, 17 years in actual research and, and intentional study, as well as further back than that in how you were raised and what you valued and found interesting, um, ties in with this collective consciousness that is starting to uh, become very visible in in a much wider uh, circle of people who have been feeling this, studying this, thinking about this, publishing about this. In and and that to me is such a great indicator that the potential for the shift in mindset is there. I think that's. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. I think that's very nicely put. You know, back in so the Plants of Persons, I guess I finished as a book in 2008. It didn't come out as a book until 2011. But so, yeah, that's 12 years old now. And even in that time, I think there's been a, a, a huge shift, certainly in, in academic literature, but also through into popular literature. You know, I was just talking with a, a student um, who was visiting Wellington, um, Anna Lawrence from University of Cambridge the other day, and we were talking about this. That you know, there's a lot bubbling up, and people are approaching plants in these quite radically different ways from a lot of different disciplines. You know, mm-hmm. but from art, from geography, from um, I've had people you know using my work from architecture, photography, really across um, disciplines. You know, at the minute, um, engaging with some of the uh, leading scientists on this to, to to do further work so it, it's right across and I think the, for me that's really exciting it's also bubbled into the popular consciousness as well I don't know if you, you know a book by a, a guy called Peter Vorleben who's oh a, yeah um, you know that's a bestseller um, I'm thinking of Richard Powers The, the Overstory um, which um, yeah which I know I mean I wrote I wrote to Richard few months ago actually and was kind kind enough to send a note back and he said to me that Plants as Persons was was a book that you know he he had read and um, <sighs> was you know fed into you know his his you know um work in the overstory which um made me smile because I think it's a, a very you know it's a very important book um, and so there is you know there's a lot bubbling up and I I think that's right. You know, things have changed in that last 10 years, which gives me hope because, thing, you know, environmentally, things are quite perilous at this time. And so um, if, if my work can contribute in even a small way, then I think, you know, it's, as I say, in, in the imagination of plants, it will be worth the paper it's written on. So, As I say, that collective consciousness and, and the bubbling up that you and I are both clearly experiencing with such hope and excitement is it's directly correlated to how we treat our environment, how we treat other people, the, um, you know, visibility of social justice, uh, that idea of kinship, like you, you used this word. And 
It triggered for me my whole last year of episodes with people from very different sectors. You know, a, a poet professor, Ross Gay, in um, the Midwest, in Indiana, writing about kinship and plants as an avid gardener, but a poet. And Margaret Wrinkle, in her memoir, Late Migrations, has this direct correlation between plants and kin. And um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's braiding sweetgrass and all of her research um, is, you know, articulating a millennia-old uh, worldview that sees plants as kin. This all leads us to the imagination of plants, a book of botanical mythology. Now, you've already laid the scene for us of coming out of the writing of Plants as Persons, a Philosophical Botany, and wondering to yourself at the end of the book, but also in the ensuing years, how do we move, especially the people we need to move, how do we move them, all of us, past this frame of reference that serves nobody? Yeah, I started this book in on my in my kitchen table in Edinburgh, which I haven't lived for a long time, um, in 2011. So it's again, it's been a long in the making, and it's really inspired by one of my supervisors, a great environmental thinker called Val Plumwood. Val also passed um, quite a few years ago now. One of her last articles, she really called for her discipline, environmental philosophy. To start, you know, these quite radical ideas that you know, very much draw on millennia-old traditions, um, but we're re, you know, refining them and desperately reusing them for an age and a culture that really needs some a different direction. And um, she called for that discipline, environmental philosophy, to start to much more greatly engage with literature and art, and particularly with story, because you know, story moves people in ways that facts really don't and and so that was the kind of the basic inspiration I mean I quote Val in the introduction and her you know her insight there I've tried to um, do some justice um, and what I hope for the book really is to to tr you know during plants as persons I gathered so much material that didn't make it in or only made it in in a very s small way and I wanted to give those stories a bit more prominence um, and to just open them up to people um, to, to read and to, to cogitate on and to use in their writing or their poetry or their art um, so that, you know, just to amplify that already existing work um, in ways that hopefully, you know, can keep the momentum going with this bubbling up of the consciousness of you know, we have a different relationship with the natural world. Um, it comes in kind of three parts. So there's you know, 70, I think, full-color images, which I've used to try and really draw people in visually. Then we have excerpts from the myths themselves. And you know, my commentary, which does very much draw on plants as persons, but extends it you know, looking at concepts that, again, are not foregrounded in that first book. So, you know, for me, one of the most interesting chapters is around metamorphosis, um, another chapter around violence. So, you know, these concepts, I, I just kind of 
it has just grown from that initial book and the idea is just to get it out there. Matt Hall is a husband, father, and gardener, deeply interested in how our cultural mythologies can produce and support cultures of connection and respect across species and beings, or create cultures of disconnection and disrespect writ large. We'll be right back for more with this deep dive into botanical mythology. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, Matt and I sat down for this conversation early this past spring, before COVID-19 worldwide pause hit. He recently wrote to give me an update. I wanted to share some of that here with you. Kia ora, Jennifer. So much has happened. It feels like we're living in a different world since we last spoke. Where to start? Like everywhere on the planet, the pandemic has had a significant effect on our lives here. As a parent of two young girls under five, our five weeks of lockdown was fairly intense, juggling my full-time job and looking after two children, while my wife also worked full-time on finishing a documentary series on water, meant that things were hectic. We worked in shifts of four hours, while the other had the girls, and then swapped over. Lockdown meant that we were only able to go for one walk a day in the local neighborhood. So during my shifts with the kids, we did spend quite a bit of time in the garden. What a blessing to have this space. I really felt for anyone without an outdoor space and strongly feel that outdoor space should be considered a basic essential for housing. Having the girls at home meant that I didn't get any time for research, but I really enjoyed spending this additional time with them. In the garden, we got involved with plenty of tree climbing, flower picking, and pressing, and the girls helped me plant some winter vegetables, kale, silver beet, red cabbage. They are both also very keen on wielding the hosepipe. As I say in our conversation, we're also very fortunate to live on Wellington's south coast, so on our daily walk we were also able to walk to our local beach and spend time clamoring over driftwood, identifying seaweed species, and finding paua shells. Of course, the lockdown was an emergency response to a global crisis, but part of me really misses the tranquility of that time and just spending time outside with my children. Would it be so difficult to create a society in which that was the norm rather than feeling like a privilege for few? Here in our place, we're also in a blessed situation of having effectively eliminated COVID-19, so life has slowly got back to some semblance of normal. The pandemic situation hasn't had an impact on the broad focus of my research, but it has helped me remember that examining our relationship with nature is one of our most important tasks right now. I feel like it's opening up opportunities to do things differently. Whether we take them or not is a different matter. We're back now to our conversation with Matt Hall discussing botanical mythology and its effects on how we see, know, and treat the world around us. Your introduction outlines very uh, articulately the idea that story 
and myth, while sometimes dismissible as fiction and fantasy, are in fact the um, undergirding of how we identify ourselves as cultures. And in our greatest, longest-lasting mythologies, there is this tendency for human centricity, primarily a male hero, either um, coming of age and uh, self-realization, conquering some perceived evil, uh, and being the dominant victor. And you are... You have plumbed the depths of mythology from a really extensive range of cultural mythologies, and you have pulled forward or, you know, foregrounded, as you say, you have centered the sections of these mythologies that actually speak of the agency and primacy of plants as personalities, as, as active heroes in their own right. And you do that as a way to ask us more culturally to shift our vision and rethink this narrative, reframe this narrative, because in reframing that narrative, we reframe our, our own identities and what we hold up as valuable and powerful. Yep, I think that's beautifully put. I think, you know, the, again, I'm, I'm really drawing on long-standing research in mythology um, or mythography that you know people like Joseph Campbell who's saying you know it really is the this idea these stories are foundational um, for all I think for all cultures you know this is how we understand our place in the world but it's also how we understand our, what our possibilities are mm-hmm. um, and you know I guess the reason why I I guess I was not forced into, but I, I felt like I had to really reach across different mythological traditions is because there, you know, there are not huge amount, there's not a huge amount of material um, in in one single tradition that could be brought to bear in a book of this kind of length. Um, even in, you know, particularly with oral indigenous traditions, there's not a lot that is captured and written down and there's not a lot that directly pertains to plants so particularly the the kinship relationships is often in the foundational myths and that relationships is set up um but it's it's then often not repeated i guess because you know it's it's taken for granted that is the that is the way of the world and we we talk about other things so I've kind of used these myths as, as material and done something slightly different with them, as you say. So we're really trying to make them the absolute foreground. And and collecting them together, you get a sense of how common some of these ideas mm-hmm. are because quite disparate cultures that have, you know, I'm not an anthropologist, but I, I, I think I can understand that some of these cultures are very different, different languages, different ideas of... Um, culture itself but these ideas kind of persist and pervade and for me that was very interesting so yeah I tried to foreground I think to some extent it probably come up against a limit to what I try and do in the introduction which is to say you know we need to make plants the heroes of these stories um, 
I think, you know, the book, I think, is setting us up to a point where I hope people um, can take that as an inspiration and then move forward. And it really challenges, I guess, you know, I'm not a narrative theorist, but our understanding of what narrative is, I think, you know, our understanding of narrative is, is, is deeply embedded in the human. You know, I've got a, a colleague who is... Um, a PhD in narrative theory, and he was saying to me just the other week, you know, there are basically two stories in human history. There's, you know, man, as I deliberately say in the gender, a man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. That's, you know, and and they're really the same story, just from a different viewpoint. So it's, it's, it's a human being off doing stuff. It's our basic story, and that's what drives people. So whether we can even break free from that um, and really situate plants as agents. I think the, the myth that I've collected gives little snippets of that. You know, for really common you know, plants that we, we would all deal with, day, you know, often day to day, like a maize and, and, you know, we've got the laurel tree and common garden plants and we've got oaks, you know, that are being situated as, as, something other than just mute and passive in our resources but whether we can make that next step and make them the center of a narrative is i think you know is what richard powers has done quite skillfully with the aura story um, and i think it's beyond my expertise so that's where i i think where i i, I let it loose into the world is saying please <laughs> can somebody you know can we can we use this material and and and, and start to even think about narrative itself and for me, that's really exciting. And I'd like to see what comes of that. I want to talk about how you handle the concept of anthropomorphism and um, how you sort of deal with it and set it down. Um, so anthropomorphism, you know, there are uh, scholars who, you know, anthropomorphism is one of the first barbs that's reached for when you talk about, you start to talk about non-humans in these ways in which they are sentient or animate um and i you know i i draw on my um mentor i guess val blomwood's um analysis of of anthropomorphism really i mean she was quite withering in her put downs of anthropomorphism she calls it um familiar you know the familiar attempts at delegitimating any new or old animating sensibility so you think about where that that accusation of anthropomorphism comes from it's got its own philosophical underpinnings which kind of presume you know they presume a lack of of sensibility and sentience and animacy in the first place and then accuse you know accuse the writer or the reader who, uh, you know of projecting that into so into non-human beings so it, it's kind of got its own assumptions in there in the first place that these are not um, sentient or alive beings. So I think that that's kind of, that's for me very interesting. So you go around in this loop, I guess, where, you know, you, you can't really resolve that. I guess for me, anthropomorphism kind of, at its foundation, it's, it's, a, it's an accusation that comes from a philosophical place of discontinuity with the natural world. Um, and that, for me, is quite simple, but also quite profound um, thing to understand is that, you know, it ignores that we do have continuances with uh, with non-human life. It, when we talk about um, 
you know, plant sensitivity or intelligence. We're not talking about plants acting in the ways that humans do. That that would be, you know, that's frankly kind of nonsensical. Of course, they don't act in the ways that humans do, but they have their own forms of sensation and action and agency and sensitivity, which um, the literature in in the botanical sciences there is you know raft the reams of work now that is really showing that these are established kind of um characteristics of plant life people are often very reticent to them to kind of draw some conclusions from that say okay well how do we treat plants then i can kind of understand that because it is such a deeply embedded way of viewing plants but yeah this kind of charge of anthropomorphism um plumwood says it's become a its major function is to bully people out of thinking differently. Yeah. She was, you know, very withering. Yeah. She, you know, she calls it a highly abused concept that's used carelessly and uncritically to kind of avoid doing that hard work of scrutinising our assumptions. Um, and she advocates a good um, case for dropping the term completely. She, she really um, thought of it as a, of a way of kind of shutting down discussion. Yeah. Thinking of the myths that most vividly spoke to me, um, I opened the, the introduction with a, a short retelling of the Jason myth um, from Greek mythology. I'm from England. Um, anyone that met me would see I have Celtic uh, history. I've got red hair and very pale skin. So my Celtic kind of, we don't have those myths in my kind of culture, I guess, or certainly that I was exposed to as a child. So the nearest myths that put forward this animating sensibility that I did have access to were the Greek myths. When I came across those myths for the first time, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, the death of Adonis where Aphrodite, I think the, the excerpt from Ovid, which he sprinkles some nectar from his blood, you know, the anemone comes forward or I think as obvious said of it says a flower you know the hue of pomegranate so this bright red flower and that that transformation you know kids love that stuff and you know, my kids at the minute they my daughter said the other day she had a dream where uh, lots of animals turned into people and then they turned back into animals and it's, there's something there that really captures the imagination of this this metamorphosis and so those myths, particularly the Greek myths of metamorphosis, I guess for me, it was at that point, I was reading them during writing plants as persons, they get kind of, they make the the hairs on my arm kind of stand up even now <laughs> when I read them, because I think they are so simple, but powerful. And you know, if we, you know, I was just rereading some this morning in preparation for speaking to you. You know, I'm, I'm still picking up things in, in these myths that I've, perhaps never really thought about deeply enough before. And I think those those really speak to me. Mm-hmm. I've been living in Aotearoa, Zealand for nearly five years now. My wife's a New Zealander and both my children are very much so. My children, um, you know, either at their daycare or my daughter now at school, they learn Maori mythology. And that is, I guess, part of their inspiration for engaging with the natural world. My eldest daughter, Iris, talks about Tafirimatia, the, you know, the Maori god of or the ator of wind and speaks to the wind in a way that's it's very animating in its sensibility. Um, so some of the Maori myths, I think, they connect me a little bit to this place in which I, you know, I, I'm 
very conscious I am a settler of the myth of Rata in the chapter on violence and Rata. It's kind of a cautionary myth of being violent towards plants in, in ignorant or unknowing ways. And so Rata is, is taught a lesson there in, in the myth, that, this myth that extends across the Pacific. At this moment in time, I'm doing some work extending these ideas of kinship. And I'm interested in, you know, what forms of kinship can I um, experience or lay claim to in a place where I do not um, have that direct genealogical cultural link to plants like the flax, which I mentioned earlier. Um, but I do work with day in, day out. And I can there be ways in which I can recognize and reform kinship relationships. Coming full circle on this, um, and, you know, as a gardener, as an educator, as a thinker, what is what is your greatest hope for for this work going forward and the imagination you are trying to gift us all? Somewhat humbly, I would say, some of these people that have those relationships could probably teach me a great deal. Um, I guess what I would hope from the work is that if there are plants in there, there are stories in there that can deepen already existing connections and can allow or give some kind of platform for people to feel confident about extending, you know, talking about those with others and kind of normalizing this, find ways to become kin or to refine kinship or deepen it. Um, and then to talk about it and extend that into the world and become champions for that, if you like. I think that, for me, would be fantastic. I would also love, you know, to do another book where um, we, I'm, you know, really talking to these people who have fantastic kin-based relationships and understanding more about how they operate, what happens day to day. Uh, and so that's kind of a hope for myself, I guess, is you know, to to be able to kind of to keep deepening my own understanding and learning from from people who you know live this day to day. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been wonderful to speak to you from very far away with this um, very clear connection. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Matt Hall is a husband, father, and gardener, deeply interested in how our cultural mythologies can produce and support cultures of connection and respect across species and beings. His books, Plants as Persons and The Imagination of Plants, work to highlight myths and cultural narratives across time, which center plants as animating and heroic beings in their own rights and to the benefit of us all. Mythological texts that Matt plums in his research include the Hindu Vedas, Mahabharata, and Puranas, the Book of Genesis, the Norse Eddas, the Zoroastrian Buddhazin, ancient Chinese and Japanese myths, the Finnish Kalevala, the Mayan Popol Vuh, and Chilam Balam of Chumayel, as well as creation stories and myths from the North American Akoma and Zuni traditions and Incan and Australian mythology. 
Join us again next week when we start a two-part series looking at the beauty, agency, and heroism of plants and their faunal companions through the imaginative eyes and handwork of two artists, beginning with Colleen Southwell of The Garden Curator, based in Australia. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR in Point Reyes Station on California's northern coast. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, check out the historic art of botanical myth from the imagination of plants, as well as images of Matt's botanically named co-gardeners and their place. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.